This morning, I'll be preaching a sermon entitled, The Security of Our Salvation. And I believe that this is a very important topic for the Christian church to cover. It's important because many non-believers challenge the idea that a person can be completely confident that they will go to heaven. They challenge the very idea that a person can have any degree of security in their salvation. And not only non-believers challenge this idea, believers also struggle with having assurance in their own salvation. Sometimes believers in Jesus Christ struggle because they're new to the faith and they have not accepted the Christian doctrine of salvation by faith alone. They simply have not matured into understanding that once they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are saved by faith and they cannot lose their salvation. This truth that you cannot lose your salvation is affirmed by many scriptures in the Bible. Jesus Christ himself affirmed this truth in John 10, 28 through 29, when he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, even though this scripture and many others affirm the truth that a believer's salvation is completely secure, sometimes believers still struggle with the idea of assurance. Sometimes they struggle because they've been exposed to many of the false teachings of our day. As many of you know, many of the world religions teach that you cannot have security in your salvation. Religions such as Mormonism, Catholicism, and Islam, they all teach a work-based salvation, meaning you have to earn your way into heaven. And because you're never quite sure that you've done enough to gain the favor of God, you never have security in your salvation. And as servants of the Most High God, we must combat this error with truth. See, we were in a battle, and it's the same battle that the Apostle John found himself in when he wrote the book of 1 John, which is specifically the text that I'll be preaching from today. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. However, to give you some context, I'll start out by reading 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. So please open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. Now here the Apostle John states, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 
And here are some of the verses I'll be focusing on. My little children, I am writing these, these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever said he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, the Apostle John wrote this letter in first century A.D., and when he wrote it, he was living in the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a province in Asia, which is now modern-day Turkey. Now, in this particular province, there were many churches, and the Apostle John oversaw all of those churches. However, these churches were being infiltrated by false teachers. These false teachers were teaching doctrines that caused some believers to think that they had a license to sin. And John, being a a loving pastor of his flock, John being a zealous defender of the truth, wrote this book to combat the false teachers. He also wrote it to give those believers under his care assurance in their salvation. He did this by providing them with a series of moral tests. He proposed that if they passed these tests, it would prove that they were living according to the word of God in obedience to it. And if they knew that they were living in obedience to God, they would thereby know that they are secure in their salvation. This is John's foundational focus here in chapter 2. Therefore, this is my foundational focus in my message today. Listen, when we live according to the word of God, it affirms the security of our salvation. Now, I'm going to say that again. When we live according to the word of God, it affirms the security of our salvation. This is the primary message here in chapter 2. And John begins that message in verse 1 when he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, after John has issued the moral test found in chapter 1, he transitions here to issuing the test of obedience. He opens up chapter 2 by referring to the believers as my little children. He uses this term, my little children, to express his deep love for the believers under his care. See, when John wrote this letter, he was advanced in years. Most theologians believe he was upwards of 80 years old. They also believe that at this point in time in his ministry, he was the last living apostle. And how many know when you're advanced in years, your heart tends to grow more tender for those whom you love? This is how we find John when he writes this letter. But although we find him with advanced in years and with a heart that's very tender, 
He remains a fierce protector of the truth and a fierce protector of his flock. He refuses to stand idly by while the flock was being attacked by false teachers. He refused to stand idly by while the sheep were being fleeced by a wicked doctrine. He refused to stand idly by while the members were being assaulted with falsehoods. See, these false teachers were purveyors of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a belief system which taught that the spirit is good and all matter is evil. And because only the spirit is good, they taught that Real life only exists in the spirit realm. Therefore, anything done in the body, even the most heinous sins, have no effect at all. It was this heresy that was seeping into the Christian church during John's day. So John combats this cancerous philosophy by issuing the moral test found in chapter 1. He issues the test of walking in the light versus walking in darkness. He issues the test of confessing your sins versus denying your sins. Then, after establishing his love for his flock by referring to them as my little children, he goes on in chapter 2, verse 1, to let them know why he's issued the test that he's given them. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, with this statement, John is encouraging the believers in Asia not to engage in sin. He is encouraging them not to take sin lightly. He is exhorting them to live lives that are continually holy, as every saved person should. And he understands that because the believers in Asia are saved, that they are regenerate, meaning they are born again by God and made into new persons in Jesus Christ. He also understands that Because they are new persons in Christ, they are also sanctified, meaning they are holy and enabled by the Holy Spirit to live lives that are progressively righteous. And because they are saved, because they are regenerate, because they are sanctified, he understands that they have been forgiven of all of their past, present, and future sins. He points this out in 1 John 1.7. Please turn your Bibles to the book of 1 John 1.7. Now here he states, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now here, John issues the moral test of walking in the light. In other words, the test of living a life that is holy and righteous. And when John uses the term, Walk in the light. He is pointing to the effects of sanctification in the life of a believer. In other words, he is saying that a person who is saved has been made holy by God and therefore will live a life that is holy in nature. And when he states, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, he is indicating to those believers in Asia that the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ has rendered them forgiven of all past, present, and future sins. Therefore, if they live holy, they pass the test, and they prove that they are saved. And having established that the true believers in Asia are forgiven of all of their sins, and knowing the false teachers of Gnosticism are instructing them that their sins have no effect on their lives, John reminds them to not take sin lightly. 
and he commands them to not sin. John gives them this command because he understands that every true believer in Jesus Christ has been given the power over sin. That includes both you and I. We see this truth affirmed in Romans 6, 12 through 14. Please turn your Bibles to Romans 6, 12 through 14. Now here in Romans 6, 12 through 14, Paul says to believers in Jesus Christ, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. This truth that every believer in Jesus Christ has been given dominion over sin undergirds the command given by John to the believers in Asia that they should not sin. However, John realizes that although the believers in Asia are new persons in Jesus Christ, he understands that they are still encased in fallen human flesh and thereby will still struggle with the temptation to sin. Therefore, he goes on to say in 1 John 2, verse 1, but, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, with the statement, but if anyone does sin, John is not giving the believers in Asia a license to sin habitually. He is simply implying that singular acts of sin will probably occur in the lives of believers. We can deduce this because the word for sin that's being used here is the Greek word hamarte. And this particular word is in the aorist tense, which implies a singular act of sin. And when we look at the meaning of the word hamarte, it literally means to miss the mark. And the mark that's been set by God is his perfect holiness, which we all fall short of. This is confirmed in scriptures such as Romans 6.23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because, listen, we all fall short. What John is saying with this statement, but if anyone does sin, is that although believers have been given power over habitual sin, because of the effects of the flesh that we're encased in, they are still prone to committing singular acts of sin. In other words, they are still prone to missing the mark of perfect holiness. However, when they do miss the mark of perfect holiness, and if you notice in the text, he includes himself in this. He says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Oh, what a glorious affirmation of divine faithfulness in Jesus Christ. What a glorious affirmation of divine comfort in our Savior. What a glorious affirmation of divine intercession by our high priest. What a glorious affirmation of divine provision by the Lamb of God that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Listen, I heard some amens, and that's absolutely right. 
because each and every one of us should be thankful and encouraged by that truth. Each and every believer should be humbled by the mercy that God has shown to each and every one of us. Because God the Father is a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. And he executes his wrath through his judgments. So here John pictures God the Father as the supreme judge of all. And he pictures believers in God's celestial court as accused sinners. And because God is perfectly holy, he has deemed that the punishment for rebellion against his holy standard is eternal death. This is made clear in Romans 6.23 when he says, the wages of sin is? Yes. Death meaning condemnation to hell. So each and every person who sins is deserving of death. Each and every sinner stands guilty before God's bar of justice. And that includes those who sin habitually and those who sin singularly. But for those who are true believers in the Savior, God has made a loving provision. And John makes it clear what that provision is. He says, God has given us an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, this is where God displays the magnitude of his love. Because for those who believe in Jesus Christ, instead of giving them death, he gives them eternal life. Therefore, John's picture is not one of believers in God's holy court being accused of rejecting Jesus Christ and receiving the judgment of hell. No, it's one of believers being accused by Satan of falling short of the glory of God. And we know that Satan is the accuser in this celestial picture because the Bible confirms it in Revelations 12.10. Please turn your Bibles to Revelations 12.10. Now here in 12.10, the Apostle John speaks prophetically about the final battle between God and Satan. And he points out, that the redeemed believers in heaven rejoice at the defeat of Satan. Those redeemed believers rejoice because Satan has been accusing their brothers before God day and night, John says. He says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So, to the believers in Asia, John paints a picture of God's celestial court. And in that picture, Satan is the evil prosecuting attorney. God is the supreme judge of all, and Jesus Christ is the righteous advocate. Now, What does John mean when he refers to Jesus Christ as our advocate? Well, when we look at the word advocate, it's derived from the Greek word parakletos, from which we get the word paraclete. And parakletos means one who comes alongside of another and helps that person, or one who comes alongside of another and pleads the case of that person. Now, sometimes... 
Parakletos is used in the Bible to describe the Holy Spirit. We see this usage in John 15, 26, when Jesus Christ says this about the coming Holy Spirit. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will be a witness about me. So here, Jesus Christ describes the Holy Spirit as one who will be a witness about him. In other words, the Holy Spirit pleads the case of Jesus Christ to a fallen world. However, when John refers to Jesus Christ as the paracletus or the advocate, he is saying Jesus is the one who is pleading our case before the God of heaven. Listen, he is saying Jesus is the one who's providing a divine defense against our accuser. He is saying Jesus is the one who is helping us against the attacks of the father of lies. He's saying Jesus is the one who is coming alongside us and interceding before our God. Jesus is the one who does this, and he's able to do it because he is perfectly righteous. This is why John refers to him as not just our advocate, but as our righteous advocate. And he is perfectly righteous because he lived a perfectly sinless life when he was here on earth. And because he lived a perfectly sinless life, he was able to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. This is why John goes on to say in 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, what does John mean by saying he is the propitiation for our sins? Well, we can always go to the Greek text for some more illumination. Now, when we look at the word propitiation, it's derived from the Greek word helasmos. And the word helasmos means appeasement. So what John is saying here is that when Jesus Christ laid down his life for our sins, he appeased the wrath of God that was stored up for us for violating his perfect law. In other words, he satisfied the wrath of God. And God always required a punishment to be administered toward those who violated his perfect law. And in order for that punishment to not be administered and for forgiveness to be received, God always required a blood sacrifice. Now, this concept of a blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins is not a purely New Testament concept. We see its origins in the Old Testament because it's a foundational doctrine that's critical to God's entire redemptive plan. We see this foundational doctrine in the Old Testament in Leviticus 17.11. And here it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now here, God said that because blood gives life to an animal, the Jews are restricted from eating it. And God says that he has given the lifeblood of animals 
for the Jews to use it in order to atone for their souls. In other words, in order to receive forgiveness for their sins. And because the punishment for sin is death, the death of the animal represents the death that the sinner was supposed to receive. The sinner deserved to die. Therefore, the animal must die as a substitution for the sinner. This is what we refer to as substitutionary atonement. And this is what Jesus Christ did when he gave his life blood for our sins. We were supposed to die for our sins, but he took our place instead. So the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to the future perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We see this also in the fact that in the Old Testament, God always required the animal being sacrificed to be unblemished, meaning it could not have any defects such as a blind eye or a shortened limb. This truth is affirmed in Numbers 6, 13 through 14. If you can please turn your Bibles to the book of Numbers 6, 13 through 14, chapter 6, 13 through 14. And once you're there, you'll see that it talks about the duties of a Jewish Nazarite who was a Jewish person who was holy and dedicated to God. And it said that whenever a Jewish Nazarite sinned by touching a dead body, he had to repent for that sin. He had to repent by bringing unblemished sacrifices to God. It says, and this is the law for the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering. So God always required the sacrifice being offered to be unblemished. And the unblemished nature of the sacrifice pointed to the future perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. See, the animal sacrifices, they only provided temporary forgiveness. This is why they had to be offered over and over and over again. But when Jesus Christ, who was sinless, sacrificed himself on the cross, he satisfied God's wrath completely and provided total forgiveness for the sinner. This is why animal sacrifices are no longer needed because Jesus appeased God completely. He redirected the wrath of God from the sinner unto himself, giving us forgiveness for our sins once for all times. This is affirmed in many scriptures, such as Hebrews 7.27, which says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. In Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 5.8, it says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? In 1 Peter 18.19, it says, You were ransomed from the feudal ways, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or a spot. So, 
We have been forgiven completely by the Lamb of God who is without blemish or spot. He is the unblemished propitiation for our sins. This is why he is able to plead our case before God. When I say our case, I do mean those who specifically accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This distinction needs to be made because many have misinterpreted the second half of 1 John 2.2. Because after John states that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he goes on to say in verse 2, and not only for ours, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, this verse has been commonly misconstrued to mean that everyone everyone in the world is saved and going to heaven. This position is known as universalism, and it's 100% wrong because universalists believe that no one has to specifically accept Jesus Christ in order to receive the free gift of salvation. However, when we examine the truth of 1 John 2.2, we see that this is wrong. Because when John uses the the term, the whole world, he is simply using it as a figure of speech referring to humanity in general. But he does not mean that it refers to every specific individual. We can deduce this because this figure of speech is used in other places in the Bible. And when it's understood in its proper context, we see it does not refer to every individual. We see a case of this in John 12, 19. Would everyone please turn your Bibles to the book of John? That's the Gospel of John 12, 19. Now here in verse 19, as Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, John records that large crowds of Israelites came out to greet him. And the Pharisees, who thought they were gaining ground in making the people reject Jesus Christ, acknowledged to one another that they were not gaining ground. John records, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, when the Pharisees said, The world has gone after him, They did not mean every specific individual in the world. They did not mean all the people who were alive in Britain and all the people who were alive in Spain at that time. We can clearly see this. They simply used that as a figure of speech to refer to the crowd of Israelites that were present right there at that time. Therefore, in 1 John 2.2, when John says that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, He is not saying that he atoned for the sins of every individual and therefore everyone is saved. He's clearly not saying that. He is simply using it as a figure of speech referring to humanity in general. Because John fully understands that in order for a person to be saved, they must specifically accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is why he says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The world, or 
humanity in general, is not saved. Because here, John qualifies that with the criteria that must be met for one to be saved. And that criteria is, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, once a person does accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live in them and convicts them to live holy and righteous lives. This ultimately provides the believers with assurance and security in their salvation. John goes on to affirm this truth in John 2, 3, when he says, And by this we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. With the words, by this, John moves from teaching that Jesus appeased God to setting forth a new set of moral tests. And at the foundation of these new tests is the issue of obedience. And obedience is critical because when a believer obediently lives according to the word of God, it's evidence of their salvation. Listen, it provides them with security in their salvation. So here in verse 3, John issues the test of obedience to the believers in Asia, and he instructs them that if they pass the test, it is proof that they are genuine believers. In other words, it's how they can come to know that they are truly saved. He says in verse 3, if we keep his commandments. Now, when the word commandment is used here, it's not referring to the Ten Commandments. It's referring to the principles taught by Jesus Christ in the New Testament. We see support for this in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, when Jesus Christ gave the Great Commission to the apostles. He told them, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and I will be with you till the end of the age. Now here, Jesus told the apostles to make disciples that would observe all that he has commanded. In other words, make disciples that would live according to the entire scope of what he taught during his earthly ministry. This was what he required then, and it's what he requires now. We as believers are to live obediently according to the word of God, and we're not to do it out of a legalistic response to our Savior. No, we're to do it out of a loving response to his appeasement of God's wrath. We're to do it out of a loving response for his sacrificial death on the cross. We are to follow his commandments out of love for him. This is why Jesus Christ said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is why he said in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. This is why he said in John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. This is why he said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And when we live according to the word of God, we are assured of our salvation. Listen, when we live according to the word of God, we know that we are truly saved. 
When we live according to the word of God, we know that he's appeased God's wrath. When we live according to the word of God, we know that he died for our sins. When we live according to the word of God, we know that we've been empowered not to sin. When we live according to the word of God, we know we have an advocate before God. When we live according to the word of God, we know he pleads our case before our holy God. Listen, when we live according to the word of God, we know we are saved by his precious blood. We are bought by his blood. We are saved by him for all of eternity. And each and every one of us, who are true believers in Jesus Christ, should be tremendously thankful for the security that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you for sending your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. He is the one who appeased your holy wrath that was stored up for each and every person who violates your holy law. And as your word says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because at some point in time, everyone has lied. At some point in time, everyone has used your name in vain. At some point in time, everyone has committed one sin or another. And your word says if we break one sin, we break your entire law. So we all stand guilty. But praise God that the debt that we owed was paid by your son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you that for those of us who believe, we know that when we die, we will go to heaven. We have security in our salvation. And we pray for all those who do not believe, that they may come to believe, that they too may overcome this world through believing in Jesus Christ, receive the free gift of salvation, and spend all of eternity in heaven with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.